Hello, and welcome to Calming the Chaos with Tracy Canella, licensed mental health counselor at Lokahi Counseling. This podcast provides tips, tools, and techniques to help people who are overwhelmed, stressed out, anxious, depressed, angry, or struggling with an addiction, eating disorder, or relationship problems. Through my personal stories, experiences, and training, my intention is to offer you new ways of coping with mental chaos and moving toward a calmer, more peaceful life. As you listen to this podcast, just know that although I am a licensed mental health counselor, this podcast is not a substitute for counseling or psychotherapy. And so if you're really struggling with something and you don't have a counselor, I strongly recommend that you find a licensed mental health counselor in your area to help you. You can do this by calling your local crisis line or by going to www.psychologytoday.com and doing a search for counselors in your area. That being said, now let the chaos begin. In this episode of Calming the Chaos, we'll be talking to Stacy Schilter Paisano, licensed marriage and family therapist and certified eating disorders specialist at the Emily Program in Washington State. The EMILY program offers a variety of different ways to help those who struggle with eating disorders find recovery. Stacy and I are both passionate about treating eating disorders in our local, national, and international communities. And so now, during National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, Stacy and I talk as two certified eating disorders specialists about the chaos that can happen in the minds and bodies of those who are struggling with eating disorders and especially in those who decide that they want to enter into a treatment program to find recovery. So let's listen in. Hi, Stacy. Thanks so much for coming on to Calming the Chaos. I appreciate you joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, we're just going to go ahead and jump on in. As you know, this podcast is about the chaos that can happen in your mind when you're at a facility that would do outpatient or inpatient, either medical or mental health treatment. And so with your experience at the EMILY program and doing what you do, you are the site manager and a therapist. Let's have you tell us about your work at the EMILY program. Absolutely. So at our site, we offer outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization or intensive day programming, treating clinical eating disorders, and the individuals are oftentimes dealing with pretty intrusive body image dissatisfaction as well. And within those levels of care, we are focusing on helping them recover from the behavior patterns or their symptoms that they have been using and have gotten accustomed to using for purposes of coping or managing different internal stressors. And your program is one that clients don't stay overnight. They will experience some chaos in their minds because their environment has changed. Oh, absolutely. I think um, we could talk about a lot of different experiences of mental chaos from when they're dealing with the eating disorder itself to the intake assessment when they receive a recommendation that was unexpected, and then they admit to programming and are being asked to do things so differently than they naturally would. So I think we could talk about the mental chaos inherent in any of those areas. 
Great. So yeah, let's start with intake. The people who have found your program, either by Googling it or by a recommendation, and they go in, they schedule an intake, and then they meet with an intake coordinator, a person who interviews them about themselves. So what sort of chaos goes on in the mind of a person on the other side, a person looking to possibly admit to your program? Right, absolutely. So when somebody is considering admitting to our program, or even just has developed the courage to come in for an intake assessment, they are having a dialogue with a person about their mental health experience, their lived experience, and their relationship with food. And so many of our clients deal with a thought that they're not sick enough, quote unquote, to be where they are, to be in an eating disorder treatment facility. There are a lot of individuals that are continually kind of seeking evidence that they're not sick enough and kind of downplaying or minimizing their symptoms and wanting to present as if, you know, this isn't problematic or it hasn't taken over their lives. I think there's a lot of chaos associated with disclosure and the feelings of vulnerability that show up when an individual is talking about behaviors that have long held been secret or have not been able to be discussed with family members or support people. I think there's also an element of fear that people might find out. So even walking into a public facility, I think people experience some chaos when they walk in and wonder if they're going to know somebody, if there's somebody at this facility that might see them who they work with or attend school with, and what might that person think? And meanwhile, on that topic, what does the person I'm disclosing this to think? Is the intake provider judging me? Do they think I'm weird? Am I crazy for doing these things? I think there's so many questions and so many racing thoughts that are happening during that time. And then when they're receiving feedback about their behaviors or even receiving a recommendation, I think there's some internal discord associated with their beliefs that they're fine and that what they're doing isn't problematic when the individual is telling them, actually, what you're dealing with is life-threatening. This is really dangerous to your health. This is not sustainable. And I think that can be really challenging to accept the acuity of the diagnosis they're receiving, coupled with the fear of change. Yeah, that's a total shift of the mind if somebody thinks that, yeah, I'm really not that bad, but then they get the assessment and then their world gets turned upside down. And that's in the middle. That's when they receive the diagnosis and the recommendations that you give. Yes. So, so this whole belief system that they have gets challenged and then their mind is spinning anyway because they're revealing all of this personal stuff. And then the recommendation comes down the pipe and they're having to sort of do, I don't know, what would you say? The mental gymnastics? What would you say that their mind is doing? Yes, I think mental gymnastics is a perfect term because there is this element of not only the fear of changing, but also, whoa, what you're suggesting is going to interrupt my everyday schedule. What you're suggesting requires that I rework my work schedule. It requires that I request assistance with my children. It requests that I, you know, uh, rework my school schedule. I mean, there's so many things that people and clients are saying, oh my gosh, there's no way I could possibly do that because it just doesn't work into their daily schedule yet. So not only is there that fear of change along with the vulnerability, but also this element of I have to overturn my life in order to address these things. 
things. And that doesn't seem feasible right now. Right. And sometimes even you at the EMILY program have to recommend a higher level of care, which could include them going into a facility that they have to live somewhere else. And that news is often hard to take as well. Yes, absolutely. I can't tell you how many clients come in and they, I think, are expecting to have outpatient services, which would mean once a week appointments with the therapist and maybe a dietitian. And then when we recommend residential treatment or intensive day programming that's 35 hours a week, their eyes get as big as saucers and they can't imagine being able to do that. And so there is a lot of, um, you know, internal chaos that's happening there. There's also some chaos that goes along with acceptance of that reality and kind of coming to terms with the truth that they're hearing. Along with that, they're then having to think about how am I going to tell my loved ones? How am I going to tell my employer that this is something that's being recommended? How am I going to explain to them that I have a problem when they think I've been fine just like I have? Well, and then so do a large proportion of people that you do intakes with, do they admit to the program? So we have approximately between 50 and 60% of people coming in do accept the recommendation. And then another 20 to 30% don't accept the recommendation, but will do a service. So if we recommend a higher level of care, such as intensive day program, and they say, no way, I can't possibly do that. I'll do outpatient then we will work with them in outpatient to kind of talk about that motivation and commitment to change because their motivation is vacillating a little bit. They're kind of on the fence. And I will ask people, where on a scale of one to 10 would you say your motivation falls? With 10 being, I really want to change and zero being, eh, I don't want to change at all. Most of them are between two and four, not really sure that they want to go to the trouble necessary to be uncomfortable, to do the things that require them to get well and put the eating disorder behaviors behind them. And so for those who do admit, I'm really curious about how you help them to calm the chaos of their minds as they are going through your program. So these are the people who actually decided to go through your program and change their lives. Right, absolutely. So one of the first things that we do, and this starts at intake. um, So number one, we have a really beautiful, warm, welcoming environment. So it's kind of a calming space that I think can be really helpful for somebody that is experiencing mental chaos. We also give them a tour of that space when they've accepted a recommendation and they know they're going to be admitting. So we show them around. We show them the group rooms they'll be spending time with, the lockers where they can put their belongings, the kitchen where they'll be doing their eating. So they have an ability to kind of predict or anticipate what they're going to experience on that first day. Then on the first day, we, they have an orientation with the program coordinator and their dietitian, and they get a schedule. So they see what their day is going to involve and how they can anticipate you know, what groups might be held, when they're going to do art therapy, when they're going to do yoga, when they're going to acquire some skills. And then we also describe to them what else they're going to experience, exactly how it's going to be, kind of giving them structure and information and answering all of the questions they have as much as possible, trying to assuage the worries that they have and the concern that they're feeling and help them feel really welcomed and comfortable within our space. 
So it's an actual experience, a tour, which gives them information. And then you're also delivering information and showing them the schedule. All of that helps them feel a little bit more under control, I would imagine, right? That they have that information and then now they can at least have some control over what's happening to them. Absolutely. Yes. So for individuals, I think that are caught up in a clinical eating disorder, there is this element of feeling out of control and there is a desire to exert some control in their lives and in their world. And so to give them a semblance of here's what's going to be happening, here's what you can anticipate, I think helps ease their mind a little bit. And also, you know, letting them know you're going to have a break at these times and you have some choice time during that break. So just helping them kind of understand. And then too, if there are cases where individuals are really experiencing intrusive chaos, we also do a lot of skills coaching when that's necessary. So our therapists on site, our program assistants, and even our dietitians are able to provide skills coaching, prompt somebody to use identified skills, and talk them through that so that they're able to feel grounded or contained from one moment to the next. Yeah, I'm really curious about the eating piece because this is where the rubber meets the road, right? They're (laughs) actually, they have to eat. And so skills have got to be used. And when you say skills, can you give our audience some examples of a skill or skills you might coach one of your clients to do when they're having problems with the eating process? Yes. So we tend to first use a lot of grounding strategies. So what that might include is paying attention to both feet on the floor. We might prompt somebody to curl their toes into a fist with their feet and feel that sensation as they relax their feet. We may prompt somebody to look around the room and identify everything that they see that's the color blue. We may prompt somebody to count the ceiling tiles if that's needed. We may give somebody a fidget to use in their hands so that they're using something tactile. And all of that is with the intention of turning their mind away from the chaos that is threatening to overwhelm. And we find that it can be really effective using any really of our four or five senses, that fifth sense being taste, because again, turning their mind to what they can see, to sounds they can hear, to tactile sensations the surface of the couch that they're sitting upon, the feeling of their clothing on their arm, whatever it might be, because those thoughts that are in their mind are kind of like a black hole that if they fall in there, it can be really challenging for them to pull themselves out. So we first use a lot of grounding strategies and a lot of mindfulness techniques to try and move them away from those thinking patterns. There is a skill called turning the mind, and we may tell clients, all right, we're going to turn your mind away from that thinking and pay attention to, and we'll give them something particular to pay attention to. We also may use some checking of facts, which that is another skill that essentially is their mind has this thought, if I eat this food, for example, if I eat this food, I will get fat. You know, it's like, okay, let's check some facts. We've got a dietitian at the table dietitian, you know, does eating food make us fat? 
and dietitian would be able to say, actually, you know, eating food is actually the medicine for our body at this time. It is the fuel for our body. And in the same way that your vehicle needs fuel, your body needs fuel. And that's what this food is. And your body's going to use it for exactly that. It's going to fuel your brain. It's going to fuel your heart. And that's why we're doing this. We also may use some motivational interviewing strategies and help people remember their why, remember why they committed to admission as well as committed to doing things differently. Right. I like that you said you do try to turn their mind over to the four senses, the fifth being taste. So when they know they're going to be putting food in their mouth and tasting the food, it is often helpful then to turn their mind to their other senses like touch or smell or sight, hearing. Great. Right. Sometimes for an individual that is dealing with a clinical eating disorder, they may not be able to objectively experience taste. What their mind might do with taste is it tastes greasy. That means Mm -hmm. it will add weight to my body. It tastes slimy. I don't want to eat it. They can experience textural aversions to food. So in the beginning stages, we're not necessarily focusing so much on that. Later stages, as we're moving toward more attuned eating, more mindful eating or intuitive eating, then we may start to pay attention and pay attention to a flavor that you like in the food or something surprising about the food or the temperature of the food. But in the beginning stages, we're going to take that a little bit more slowly. And that's where most of the mental chaos is, right? At the beginning of oh, the yes. program. I think people mm-hmm. kind of get, do they get used to it after a while? Maybe I'm making an assumption here, but do your clients get used to things and start using skills on their own without a whole lot of coaching? Yes. So initially it is really challenging. And what we do tell people is that it does get easier over time, but initially it can be really challenging for a whole variety of reasons. They're doing something differently. They are experiencing a lot of internal experiences such as anxiety or panic or distress. They're experiencing a lot of thoughts and judgments and assumptions. And as we move through time, Not only does the exposure to food get easier because it becomes somewhat habituated and it becomes somewhat normal for the individual, but it is also over time that people develop those skills for living with those experiences or tolerating those experiences while also eating. And my question then, I guess this might be the final question for you here is, as a staff member and you having two roles as both a therapist and the site manager, I'm just curious about how you keep yourself from having a chaotic mind during your day and even after your day is done. You're right. I think that's a great question. And couple of things and just add to it, because I think there's the, the mental aspect, but for empathetic people, we also kind of experience people's distress. We experience the anxiety of those around us, not necessarily because it's our own, but because we're empathizing and we're um, feeling it with them. So I think some of the strategies that I use, and I know my staff uses as well, um, part of that is the skills that I mentioned, but first just neutrally noticing what's showing up or neutrally noticing what's occurring internally for myself as I'm sitting with a client or as I'm doing some mealtime coaching at the table. 
noticing if there is some angst within myself or noticing if I'm so focused on the clients that I don't even notice my own experience because I'm eating with them, but I'm hyper-focused on them. So even just neutrally noticing that experience or noticing any of the emotions that are showing up for me, because I know when I notice them in the moment, they may be something that I want to revisit later, but also the importance of self-compassion and self-validation. So whatever does show up, being able to have compassion toward that, acting in a non-judgmental way toward whatever shows up, and self-validating whatever shows up. That if I have my own emotional state or if I'm dealing with my own distress or stress, that it's valid and it deserves a little bit of attention and honoring. And then two, using a whole variety of different skills, um, namely the one that I use a lot is letting go of things beyond my control. Mm -hmm. Really maybe wanting to fix something for an individual or to make it right or to find a solution. And within this role, there's so many things that are beyond my control because people are not within my control. People's experiences are not within my control. So some of that I do have to let go of. And then lastly, sometimes turning my mind away from wanting to perseverate or sit with or mull over how to fix a problem that really might not be fixable. Yeah. I suppose in that there's also a level of acceptance, like that idea of accepting those things that um, there's very little I can do about. Yeah, that's what exactly what I was going to talk about is that concept of radical acceptance. What I say to myself is, oh, I'm noticing I'm going into shock right now. And that's right. when you are talking to a client and a client is telling you a traumatic story and you notice yourself sort of leaving the room. Uh-huh. And that early noticing is the time to take action in yourself and be able to neutrally notice I love that term mm-hmm. and, that, and that neutrally notice like, oh, I'm going into shock. And that's what we want people to do in treatment as well. We want them to notice that they're experiencing emotion, emotions, but not judging the emotions that they're having. Yes, yes. And even further, maybe being curious about that. You know, what is it about what was just said that activated this experience for me? You know, and it might not be the time and place to do it in that moment but being able to revisit it later and kind of look at what was it that person said that activated a sense of shock or a desire to leave the room because that's very telling about ourselves also and it can be a great growth opportunity. Absolutely. And I've noticed too that if I take credit for a person's recovery, then I'll have to take credit for what they have not done to recover. And so I don't take any credit at all. And that's kind of one of the skills that I use as a therapist to where it's like, you're doing the work, it's your responsibility. Absolutely. And I can't emphasize enough about counselor self-care too, to prevent compassion fatigue, because that is almost certainly happening. So I only see client one client at a time. Sometimes I'll see a family or a couple, but you are in the room with quite a few. And so self-care is really good to be able to do. Can you just tell us one thing you do for self-care? Read novels. <laughs> I will read mind candy novels. I will read novels that are stories. I will read any novel that does kind of take me away from the therapeutic experience because my brain needs a break. I certainly read educational books or textbooks and those are valuable. I consider that quote unquote study time, but my brain does need decompressing time. And so 
time with a book is something I cherish very much. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's one of the things I do too. I love audiobooks. I love being read to. I get to, to the point where I just want to close my eyes and hear a story and like Calgon take me away sort of thing. Yeah, so. absolutely. So is there anything that you would like to say about the Emily program that you would like our listeners to know, or if you want to put a plug in there for contact information or website, anything that you'd like to do to promote the Emily program? Well, sure. If given the opportunity, the (laughs) Emily program is a national program. So we have sites in Minnesota, Ohio, Pittsburgh and Washington State. Each of those sites does offer intake assessments and different levels of care. And what I really like to highlight about the EMILY program, not only do we serve the wide range of people dealing with clinical eating disorders, that is the whole diagnostic continuum, but also with a multidisciplinary team, including therapists, dietitians, medical providers, psychiatrists, yoga therapists, art therapists. We have a whole slew of people assisting in this. And we do really individualized care. We strive to meet people where they are at and in the situation they're in so that we can assist them best and help them take the skills we're helping them acquire into their lived experience. For more information, the EMILY Program's website is www.emilyprogram.com. There's lots of information there and lots of resources to be found. Thank you so much for the work you do. Stacy is actually in my community, and so I'll refer clients to her from time to time if appropriate. And you and your staff, I just thank all of you for the work that you do and being in our community. Absolutely. It is my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Calming the Chaos. If the information in today's podcast has been helpful, please consider subscribing and share it with your friends. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. You can also follow this podcast on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Simply go to my podcast website at calmingthechaos.com dot libsyn l-i-b-s-y-n dot com for links to follow me and if you have any problems finding the podcast or how to follow me just go to my website at www.lokahicounseling.com dot com that is www dot l-o-k-a-h-i-c-o-u-n-s-e-l-i-n-g dot com Click on the podcast page and you'll see buttons with links on how to find the podcast and follow me. And I look forward to sharing my next podcast episode with you.